This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about how we can take the unusual in you and help you see it, own it, and celebrate it. Our phones are open at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And give us a call. Are you trying to bring your personal superpowers to life or market the byproduct of your own rare breed of creativity? Either way, we'd love to help you out and hear your story. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can also email us in case you know you're listening to this at your desk at work and you don't want people to know you're on the radio. Um, write to us at Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. My guests today are the authors of a new book called Rare Breed, A Guide to Success for the Defiant, Dangerous, and Different. They're the award-winning founders of Motto and one of the top branding and digital agencies for rule breakers and game changers. Sonny Bennell and Ashley Hansberger, they're not just authors. They've been featured in CBS News, Fox Business, Entrepreneur, American Express, Chicago Tribune, Forbes, Inc., Huffington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and if that's not enough, a whole bunch of other places. Between the two of them, they're members of the Young Entrepreneur Council and have graced lists such as Graphic Design USA's Top 25 People to Watch and Inc.'s 30 Under 30 and America's Coolest Young Entrepreneurs. So with that, let me say welcome to Women at Work. Sonny, Ashley, it's great to have you. We're so excited to be here. Hi, Thank Laura. you guys so much. Okay, it's one of the first mysteries I want to uncover. Ashley, say hello. Hello. And Sonny. <laughs> Which voice is yours? <laughs> that would be me. We sound a lot alike sometimes. Okay, so you guys will help keep us straight in our audience. Yes. You can pipe up in case you get confused. Um, so <laughs> I want to tell you, I've been loving the book. I find it delightful, um, and I'm seeing myself and a lot of people I love, in the, especially those from the creative community, and I'm excited to dive in. But before we do, I want to ask you, when did the two of you realize, and maybe Ashley, we start with you answering, that there was a book-worthy paradigm in who you are and how you both work? Well, Sonny and I have known each other for the past 20 or so years. And I think from the moment that we started seeing our paths come together when we started Motto and as we started working with leaders and organizations and really understanding how business works and not just um, not just on a personal level, but on a professional level as well. Um, you know, we noticed that there were certain qualities within ourselves and within some of our most favorite clients and the icons that we looked up to that there was something about them that was just different. And, you know, we are always associated with some of those traits as well. And very early on, we started kind of thinking about this term, what it means to be a rare breed, to take the parts of yourself that other people criticize, the things that they call defiant and dangerous and different, and not see them as a weakness, but start to turn them into your selling points and into your superpowers. And it was maybe 15 years ago where I think the seed of rare breed really started and then over time, you know, we just started to continue to develop it because we started to own these parts of who we were and we brought them into the work that we do for our clients and our and the companies that we work with. And it just became even more and more solidified as the years had went on. And it became the positioning really of the way that we led our own business and we, the way that we led our clients' businesses as well. So I want to anchor this in real time a little bit because I think it's one of the things that's remarkable about the two of you. When some of our guests talk about knowing each other for 20 years and having started something or discovering 15 years ago, it's because they met in their 40s and they're in their 50s or 60s now. That's not the case for you. How old were you when you guys met? We were 15 and 18. So when you got to, so you were kids, and when you got to the point that you realized that um, there's something different about how you work and that the same things that other people would have called 
unruly, unconventional, lots of uns and bad prefixes on them, that it was actually an essential part of who you were. You were kind of young to figure that out. How did you initially start to wrap your heads around the fact that these unique traits of yours were actually positives and not negatives? Well, I think that it started after we both were on the traditional path of college. So Ashley and I met in our teens. We went to co- we grew up together. Then we went to college together. And we both were going down two different tracks. I was going to be a veterinarian, and Ashley was going to go to school for journalism. So we're about a year or two in. We realized that we have something else going on inside that we feel that we can give to the world. And so we have this sort of audacious sort of aha moment where we say, we're going to drop out of college and start a branding agency. And keep in mind, we were designing on the side. Like it wasn't exactly the design just came out of nowhere. I was a musician my whole life. I had been designing uh, little things here and there, band posters for other artists and, and, and musicians. And so I was doing this kind of on the, as a side gig. I was moonlighting as a graphic designer. And I ended up asking Ashley to help me. So while we were going to college, we would do these things on the side. And then, you know, probably about a year or two in, we decided to go ahead and drop out together. Um, no, no business plan, nothing in our bank account other than $250, no reputation as being, uh, you know, leaders in the branding space or even the advertising space. Decide that we're going to go against the grain and start this branding agency, much to the dismay of everyone around us. There were only two to three major uh, advertising agencies in our local community that were sort of established and had locked down the rest of, you know, most of the the clientele. And so here, who were we, these two young women coming at uh, the industry with sort of throwing haymakers at it and saying, we think we can do this in a different way. And so once we started the company, you know, all of the odds were against us. Everybody told us we were too broke, too female, too inexperienced. Um, too young to know how to run a company or how to even start an agency in in a community that was already sort of locked down. So again, all the odds against us, we sort of realized that we have this dream and we feel like we can do something with it. And we just began uh, sort of, you know, going out and, and, and marketing ourselves and immediately start attracting the attention of some other sort of outlier type companies who said, hey, I think you guys are different. I think your point of view is different. I'll take a shot on you. And they gave us their business. And then that's sort of the rest is history. Where did the self-esteem and strength and faith in yourselves and each other come from that helped you not cave when you are, you know, 22 years old and people are saying, you can't do this? Well, I think that it was mostly... I believe that during that period of time, I think Ashley and I were just very young and brave. And I think we were sort of just didn't believe that there were the obstacles that other people saw. Uh, We didn't see those as obstacles. We saw them as opportunities. And I think that we were surrounded, even though we were surrounded by a lot of doubt there, and we sort of talk about them in our book, but I think my parents specifically, my dad was an entrepreneur. um, My mother also Uh, And they were a big kind of force in our life. And they were sort of telling us that those things were the things that were making us special. Those were the things that were making us different. And we should not try to shy away from them, but rather lean into them and make them our selling points. And my dad actually coined the phrase rare breed back when we had hit kind of a low point in the business where we were probably a few weeks within shutting our doors uh, because we didn't have any, any, any money or any clients. And again, this was, you know, a few months in. And we're just sort of like feeling like maybe this isn't what we should be doing. Maybe this isn't, maybe this is actually really hard and maybe we should listen to what everybody else is telling us. But he sort of came to the rescue and said, Hey, you guys are, you two are a rare breed. Not everybody's going to love you. Some people may misunderstand you or even hate you, but the ones that get you will never forget you. And so that was kind of a launch pad for us to sort of say, you know what, maybe those things are not the things that we should be shying away from, but actually turn into our to our greatest strengths. And it sort of flipped the script on how we not only thought about ourselves, but also how we thought about the business and what we wanted to do with the rest of our career. So it was kind of like a light bulb moment, I think, when, when we had that conversation with him. It's also a real testimony to the power of two things that we've talked about a lot on the show. So one is you can't be what you don't see. And you had the example of entrepreneurship in your own family. And you also seem to have, and it's clear that the the emotional support, the the affirmation of your value and your capacity, it was so substantial that it not only supported you, Sonny, but also supported you, Ashley. Yeah, I 
you know, Sonny's parents were a luxury. <laughs> you know, not everyone gets that. And, and we fully recognize that. Not everyone gets the support of the close people around them, often the people that are supposed to love them the most and do love them the most. Um, but in our instance, you know, we did have uh, Sonny's parents to kind of lift us up when we were feeling so down. But I think more than that. But they we, also had doubt, too. I they wanna, did. Yeah, like in the very beginning, they were like, all right, you guys are crazy. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, they were, they were realists. So I think in some ways they, try, they didn't try to take, talk us out of it. But they also were trying to say, like, this could be a cautionary tale. So you sort of need to watch what you're doing. And maybe this isn't the best idea. Like, you guys, you know, Sonny, you were going to be a veterinarian. Like, that's a pretty sure thing. Ashley, you were going to English school. That could be a little bit more of a traditional path. Maybe you should reconsider. But I think once they realized that we weren't stopping and we weren't actually listening to that, I think they sort of said, well, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And then I think also, Laura, to that point, it does it does. It is a team effort, and we had the benefit of two people meeting in this big world that we have that have come together, me and you, Sonny and Ashley, <laughs> um, with a shared vision that is so strong and so striking that almost nothing over the past 20 years has, has gotten in the way of that or has been able to break that. And I think you're kind of really important. Well, you're kind of forged in the fire, I think, you know, like through learning, growing up together and sort of being um, and learning each other's strengths and weaknesses and really then having the support of our parents, um, you know, my mom and dad specifically, and just like sort of allowing us to um, have that moment of of self-belief. I think it was a moment where it could have sort of went the other way, where maybe that self-doubt could have steered us in a different direction. And I think that's why this this book right now is very important because really Rare Breed is a book about identity. It's about m- many people coming to face to face with their own identity. And many of us, this happens very early on in our, you know, even as, as young children, we're sort of the very first mirror sometimes we ever look into is the eyes of our parents and their reflection or ideas or ideology of who we should be, who we should become. And sometimes that's a reflection of their own missed opportunities or perhaps their own sort of um, you know, the things that they didn't accomplish in their own life, they then sort of transfer that into their hopes and dreams for our life and our path. And so what we realized, I think, as, as we've written this book, and again, keep in mind, this is 15 years in the making. We, we didn't write Rare Breed like 10 years ago. We kind of lived a whole lot of life before putting pen to paper. But what we realized as we were writing it is that many people in those formative years, whether you hear those whispers of doubt very early on from your own family or you hear them in your own life, or you're even surrounded by people both as teachers or mentors or friends who sort of cast that doubt upon you, or they cast a different idea of who you should be, and they sort of cast that upon you very early on. And I think what happens over time is our own individual voices begin to get sort of conformed, and they also begin to, over time, become silenced. Mm -hmm. And some of us stay silenced forever. We never really tap into the true voice of who we are because we hear everybody else's voices. So if I were to say back, like look back and say, well, what was that turning point for us? I think we were surrounded in so much sort of defeat and and doubt. And we had that one singular voice behind us, like our our parents Mm -hmm. say, hey, guys, have something in you. It's special and you should try to not listen to the hate, not listen to the doubt, and actually tap into that and, you know, go forth. I think that was a turning moment. And I think this book is kind of like, we see it as that sort of figure where we're that voice of hope saying that, yes, there are things in, in you that may be invisible, but we're giving permission to you to make those things visible and actually leverage them to become your greatest strength so that you can unlock doors, you can walk through the career path mm-hmm. that you want and not listen to your own self-doubt. So one thing I do need to help make visible for those who are just listening to you two is who we're talking to. So for those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guests today are Sonny Banal and Ashley Hansberger. They are the co-authors of a new book called Rare Breed, and they're the co-founders of Motto. Are you recognizing yourself in the conversation so far, or you want to get some of that magic Sonny and Ashley 
inspiration, give us a call. We would love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Ashley, one of the things that's popping out to me is that at critical at a critical moment, it wasn't just the moral support, the emotional support, but that Sonny's parents didn't talk you out of it. They helped talk you through it. And I have to imagine as young women starting your own business and learning as you go, there had to have been other people that you turned to um, to help talk you through and help you in your journey to not just become um, a manifestation of your own creativity, but a highly functional business. So, Ashley, tell me a little bit. How did you um, acquire, the aside from the way that you learned from doing, more professional skills and wisdom? Well, I have to be totally honest with you, and I think it was only through doing that I acquired really? those skills. Okay, yeah, good. I, I didn't really have a whole lot of people to lean on, um, you know, besides Sunny. I think we learned together. We, we did not go into the business, like Sunny said, with a business plan. We had no prior experience. I had a part-time job at the time, <laughs> you know, working a, a college job. Um, so we didn't know anything from running payroll to balancing a P&L to doing any of the financials to putting plans together. We didn't have anyone teaching us those things. We learned them by doing and really only by doing. Mm-hmm. At what point did you start to take on staff? Did we start to take on what? I'm staff. Sorry. Sunny, when did you um, start to have your own employees? Yeah, I would say probably a couple of years in, we, we hired our very first employee, then we built the team out, and then, of course, the recession hit. So 2009-ish, 2009, 2010, kind of hit the business, um, and we had to scale down, and then we scaled back up. Once we got out of South Carolina, we moved the business to Dallas, continued scaling from there, and then scaled to uh, move to New York, and then scaled the business even further from there. So it was kind of a sort of a start and stop, and then a gradual sort of Um, growth pattern that that we experienced once we got out of South Carolina. So it sounds like when you talk about how how you really, like this relationship was, is you guys are together. And it sounds like it's also a uniquely potent partnership. You know, there are people who would like to find that in their own marriages. What do you, how do you two keep this dynamic, but really deeply knitted together relationship working? Yeah, I think that, and Ashley can probably speak to that a little bit too, but I think that, uh, you know, in the in the beginning, let's be very real. I mean, we did not know how to run a company together and certainly had very differences in opinions. Our egos would get in the way. I mean, I think one time she almost ran me over the parking lot, like <laughs> legit. You know, like it, I mean, we had some pretty intense fights. Like we had, we didn't really know our places in the business. Um, that was very difficult in the very first several years, you know, but I think what we learned as we continued to do it is that there was a deeper purpose there. We knew that motto was bigger than just our hopes and dreams. We knew that motto had a lot of meaning. I mean, it's why we named the company motto in the first place. A motto is a war cry. It's a reason that you go to battle. And so we had that sort of driving force and that purpose, that larger purpose driving every decision that we made. And I, I think that in the first couple of years, like not only did we learn all the things that Ashley's talking about, where we learned, uh, you know, we slept on the floor of the office. Like we, um, you know, we didn't pay ourselves. Like we ate ketchup sandwiches. I think back in 2007, we took a photo of our refrigerator and it literally had a gallon of water, a thing of, um, of uh, marinara sauce. And like, I think a package of hot dogs. And we, that was it. Like we were just like literally like struggling, you know? And, I think that um, it wasn't until we sort of moved through a lot of those challenges that we started to then get synced in like how and where our specific strengths and weaknesses were. And so now we've fallen into a rhythm of, you know, she's more of a strategic thinker. I'm more of a visionary thinker. I'm not really an executor. I'm somebody who can make you think you can like completely try, you know, go uh, the most big audacious idea that you could possibly have. I will be there to make you believe that you can get to the moon, you know, but it's, but it's like, that's the thing that we sort of figured out uh, that took us a long time to do. And I think respect is we respect each other fully 
And not when you almost ran me over, though. Not when I ran you over <laughs> at that moment, no. <laughs> but that time you gave me a black eye in the snowball fight. Well, that time, too. Through, you know? The question <laughs> yeah. is, was, this, was the black eye purposeful or accidental? Oh, well, well I'll, never, I'll never tell you. Laura. Jury's out. <laughs> but, you know, we respect each other immensely. And we inspire each other. And I think that when you meet someone who inspires you, that is when you just you build that connection. You're you know you can always count on that person, and you know you can trust them with your life. Well, I think it's trust, right? Like, I, and I think that this is what a lot of people, back to your point, Laura, I think that people struggle with the most when they're trying to find like a business partner, a founder, a co-founder, CEO, COO. You know, we rush into those relationships, and we know nothing about these people. We don't know anything of who they are and the character of of who they are and what they're about. Um, some people can be very deceitful, um, manipulative. I mean, there's a whole host of sort of vices, right, that you don't want to you don't want to venture into that water at all. And so our advice is, is to do a lot of due diligence in terms of if you are thinking about finding um, or searching for bringing another partner into the business or someone even that if you're, you know, two co-founders and you're thinking about bringing a third partner in, like making sure that that person that you understand what your values are and that you're really really clear on um you know what you will compromise on and will what you will not compromise on because if for any reason any of those things are at, out of alignment you will find that that person is never going to fit because you need to make sure that you understand everything that your business is about, your beliefs, your values, uh, what kind of culture you want to build. And some, most of the time, the wrong fits are just the wrong fits, and you have to accept that. But you need to first do your due diligence to make sure that you've actually vetted this person to make sure they're the right fit for you. Yeah, it's critical to build it right from the beginning. By the way, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarin. My guests today are Sonny Bennell and Ashley Hansberger. They're the co-authors of a new book called Rare Breed, and they're the co-founders of Motto, an award-winning marketing um, and design firm. Are you and one of the things that we'd love for you to do is call and get advice from Ashley and Sonny. Share your story of how you discovered how you're a rare breed. You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Sonny, I've got a question for you. Ashley before was talking about, you know, these character vices that we can have. And a central tenet of the book is that there are character traits that we all have um, and that there are certain character traits that particularly when they present in women, never mind young women, are seen as vices that can actually be tremendous virtues. And that's, I think, at the heart of what the book is about. Tell me how you started to think about these things like audacity, obsession, hot-bloodedness, weirdness, hip, being hypnotic and emotional. How did you start to realize that these are actually great traits, but if not handled well, could be vices? Yeah, so one of the things that was sort of the criteria for as we were going through the vice-virtue duality was we spent a tremendous amount of time exploring the light and dark side of each one of these things. So we started out with many different types of traits and characteristics, like things like charisma, uh, things like passion. And we sort of felt like, okay, that's really overdone. These are things that people talk about all the time, but there's a difference between passion and being hot-blooded. There's a difference between being charming and being hypnotic. There's a difference between being intuitive and being emotional. And there's a difference between being sort of prophetic or being visionary and being audacious. So these were things that were really, really important, right? Like even when we think about obsession, um, obsessed is one of the seven, mm -hmm. seven, verse, uh, seven virtues. We thought about, okay, what's the difference between somebody just being kind of like hyper- critical or hyper detail oriented versus somebody who's completely obsessed. And so it was really important that each one of these things could be as uplifting as they are undoing. And that's how we sort of landed on the seven. So each one of these seven vices, so-called vices, now virtues, uh, are rebellious, audacious, obsessed, hot-blooded, weird, hypnotic, and emotional. And in our lives and in our work, we are taught, as I said earlier, from a very young age, that some of these things are, are negatives. We're, we are taught to kind of fall in line, to keep our heads down, to not create a ruckus, 
um, you know, to stay silent a lot of the time. And even with women, I think Taylor Swift just said this. I was like, that was a brilliant line. But she said to the fact that men, when they do something, it's called strategic. But when a woman, when a woman does it, it's calculated. And so I think it's really important for us to really think about how these things are used in the workplace and in our own life. But more importantly, what society is teaching us, which is we are not allowing anyone to show up as their fully authentic selves. We are asking the majority of women, leaders, employees, whatever, to show up and and essentially check a good chunk of themselves at the door. And we're saying, but what if you could actually tap into those things that are actually that, that other you know, your, your workplaces are making are telling you that you shouldn't be or to leave that stuff at home and actually what if we could sort of turn those things and give a floor to the misfits for anyone that's ever stood out of the pack how could we help you finally lean into those things and succeed on your own terms and so that's what we sort of the criteria that we needed to 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 establish is were these things seen as negative what could they be used for as forces for good not evil and how could we help people tap into those things so that they were more celebratory and less critical? Um, and more importantly, how can we as a society also try to support those traits in others and not necessarily try to squash them out? It's clear that the way you've chosen these words so carefully, it's not just the ideas of them, that you specifically chose words that are not mild, they're not generic, and nor should these characteristics be within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because all of these are intended to change the conversation on what it means to be a leader, on what it means to be successful, on the criteria that we have taught ourselves and each other about what we can and cannot do. You know, we're often told we're not enough of this or we're too much of that. (laughs) You know, and and it's it's, what all this is doing is just telling us we're just not good enough. Right. As opposed to the fact that we're all that and a bag of chips and it's actually necessary to harness our creativity into exciting things. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Well, and also like the whole thing with Forbes, right? The Forbes most innovative leaders. Uh, you know, a hundred people were on that list. Ninety-nine men, one woman. Before we start rolling into the rest of our conversation, we happen to have a caller, so I want to take the caller, and then we'll get the ball rolling. So, um, Leah, thank you so much for calling in. Um, tell us what's on your Hi. mind today. Hi, I wanted to talk to Sunny and Ashley about uh, sensitivity um, and kind of embracing emotions uh, in work. Um, sometimes I get told by my coworkers that I become a little too emotional or passionate um, when working on projects, and I was wondering if they had any advice around that. Sunny, you want to take it first? Yeah, I'll take it. So this is a great quality to have, and I think it's one of the most misunderstood. It's a quality that I have. I feel like I'm something that is highly attuned to people and emotions and surroundings, sounds like you're very familiar. I think the beautiful thing about sensitivity is that you can feel and see and hear things that other people may not pick up on. And so you might be able to sense when a colleague is discouraged or a client is frustrated where your coworkers might not, or even your teammates may not be as self-aware or as in tune as you are. And so the dual side of this, right, because there's always a dual side to each one of these vice virtues is that you can overreact. You can read into things that actually are not there. You can perceive things um, as, as they aren't necessarily might not be, or you, it can create stress or even drama. So, you know, I think the, the thing that you have to think about is how do you figure out how to turn the sensitivity into a virtue? For example, um, and I'll give you an example, just how it, how it plays out in what I do. So I am in charge at Motto of New Business. And a lot of times uh, my job consists of just sort of being able to evaluate whether or not a client is a good fit for us. And this comes down to a lot of different things. These are things like, are they, you know, very obvious things like, do they have enough budget? Do they know what kind of scope of work is they're asking for? Do they sort of understand what the goals and aspirations and vision for their brand might be? But there's a lot of other things that clients, potential clients and prospects um, distribute or demonstrate that I have gotten really good at being able to sort of tap into and that might be considered a red flag. So 
so in your work, I think you have to start to sort of evaluate and say, how can I turn the sensitivity into things that allow me to set myself apart? What are ways that I can read the room in a way that others can't? And how can I use that sensitivity as a gift? On the flip side, sometimes it requires even sitting back from a situation because your antennas are always going off. If you're sort of the sensitive, um, emotional, maybe rare breed, you might have your antennas up all the time. And so a really good thing to think about is how do you sometimes take a step back from from that situation? How do you allow yourself to be less reactive in the moment so that you can actually use the other parts of your brain, the other parts of your um, emotional stature to sort of weigh out whether or not you were overreacting to something, misreading something, or even going back for more insight and information, whether that be follow-up questions or whatever, so that you make sure that you have a total accurate picture. So that's the ways that you can kind of leverage that to be sort of a virtue, not necessarily a vice. Leah, is that helpful? That's so helpful. Thank you so much. You are welcome. You got it. And if anybody else would like to call in and get some of this amazing advice from Sonny and Ashley, you can give us a ring at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And Leah, thank you for calling and keep listening to Women at Work. So Ashley, I have a question for you. One of the things that um, both Sonny and Leah were talking about is when it's that your antenna are sensitive and that you pick up on things. Um, as the part of the team who really is visionary, who is trying to develop the vision um, and work with clients' vision so that Sunny can be that fabulous strategic executor that she is. Um, What advice do you have for when you're working with people who bring the sensitivity to the table and you're trying to help them um, unleash it in a productive way? Well, I'm actually more of the strategic one. I'm the one who gets We'll get you where you're going who will make you believe you can climb that mountain. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a great conversation. It's a great question to have. Um, I think when it comes to sensitivity about being able to bring people back down to earth, you know, again, that heightened sensitivity, you call it intuition. You can call it uh, being sentimental. It's a, an incredibly vulnerable quality to have and to possess. It is an asset when your intuition and when your sensitivity leads to being able to dissolve barriers between people. You know, at work, there's a lot of conflict. And so emotional rare breeds, sensitive rare breeds, they're often the ones that are at the heart of the team that can bring people together, create connections when there wouldn't otherwise be, be that connection. Um, if you're lacking an emotional rare breed in a team, oftentimes you, you do have that tension that doesn't often get alleviated. Um, but again, the weakness of being a sensitive person and an emotional person is when that expression, when that emotional expression doesn't quite get tempered and you don't have that self-regulation or that self-awareness that you need, um, which can lead to being naive, you know, having thin skin, you know, mm-hmm. Feeling like you're being judged all the time or even being defensive about things, feeling overwhelmed. Um, So it's a really important quality to have, especially in a working environment. Um, When somebody has the right amount of self-awareness, but also the right amount of sensitivity to be able to kind of read the room and make sure that things are, are working in harmony instead of in conflict. Sunny, I want to ask you a question about what I see. While it's noted as a distinct virtue, I do feel like it's the other side of the moon to this, which is being hot-blooded. And mm-hmm. and how? what's the role? How does the hot-blooded part work with the sensitive part? And how does the hot-blooded come to life in a fruitful way? Well, hot-blooded is about, it's more than passion, right? Hot-blooded is about being intense. Uh, we have a quote in the book that we say, chase down your passion like it's the last bus of the night. So hot-blooded rare breeds are, they're fierce. They're fiery. Uh, they are very hard to temper in a lot of ways. Um, so the dark side of that is that they can be sort of unruly and a little bit like, you know, they'll burn you um, if, if they're not careful. Um, but yet channeling that intensity makes me think of like, you know, Romeo and Juliet, right? Like they made one terrible decision after another, but their sort of intensity and their passion, their willingness to defy fate, it remains unmatched in literature. And so when you think of like a hot-blooded rare breed and what they've sort of bring to the table, 
if you're able to channel that that passion and that fury and that intensity in the right ways, they are very, very effective. It's when they become kind of like hot sauce, that's when you want to, you, you have to sort of figure out ways to sort of temper that because in, in, in you don't, you want, again, you don't ever want to go to the sort of the dark side of the vice <laughs> right. versa. You always want to stay on the positive, you know, but, but they're very passionate, uh, intense, fiercely devoted, um, and just heart kind of centric type of people. And yet emotionally, they can be emotionally charged. So a lot of these sort of primary vice virtues, they have like one sort of primary and a lot of people have it secondary. As a matter of fact, we created this thing called the Rare Breed Quiz. We worked with a psychologist um, and an expert to help us sort of actually help you take a quiz to figure out which one of the seven virtues that you are. Yes, I'm and apparently we- rebellious, just so you know. <laughs> I can see that. It's <laughs> really interesting because we've had, we've now had thousands and thousands of people take this quiz which is really mind-blowing because we didn't you know we haven't really promoted it that much but it's just caught on like wildfire we have literally people taking it um probably every few seconds we have people taking the quiz right now because you can get it on uh, at rarebreedquiz.com and obviously um we talk a little bit about it um in the book but it's really kind of a powerful tool to figure out which of those traits that you are and how to leverage them in your workplace your life your career etc um, and so all of these vices, a lot of people find, see themselves as like, some people have said, hey, I feel like I'm kind of like emotional, but I've got like a little bit of a weird side. Um, or even like for me, I feel like I'm really audacious, but there's also sort of an obsession, an obsession side to me that a lot of people that have worked with me would absolutely be like, oh, yeah, you're absolutely obsessed because I'm <laughs> such a detail-oriented person. I want to talk about that for a minute because um, I don't know if you guys know this, but I've worked with artists for a big chunk of my career who I see mm-hmm. part and parcel of their success and why their artist is a kind of deep obsession. So talk to me. Um, Ashley, maybe you want to start about obsessed as one of these virtues and where that obsession manifests in productive ways. Obsession is a very, very interesting vice in virtue. Um, Obsessed people are those people who are on that relentless path to perfection. And we know it's unattainable. We know we're not going to reach it, but we try really hard go all in um, to achieve that. So oftentimes it's also this uncompromising nature that we have where the way that we want things done um, and what we see, we are not willing to compromise on that no matter what. So there's this kind of unwillingness to budge. Uh, Oftentimes we're called neurotic and fanatical (laughs) even, (laughs) which are not technically good things. You never want to be neurotic. You never want to be fanatical. But however, when you can learn to use your obsession and have it propel you and others around you to be able to exceed your limits, to go the extra mile, to uncover all of the flaws in the ideas, to be the one that kind of points out where something's wrong and be able to execute greatness because of it. That's where that obsessed quality can lead to such extraordinary heights. It really, uh, it really can. By the way, this is Women at Work, and I'm your co-host. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Sonny Bennell and Ashley Hansberger. They're the co-founders of Motto, and they're talking with me today about their book, Rare Breed: A Guide to Success for the Defiant, Dangerous, and Different. Are you a rare breed, or hoping that you are and waiting to be set free? Give us a call and talk to us about your superpower or the risk you took that paid off. Our phone number is one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. You can also send emails into Patty Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. So I want to come back to this idea of um, obsession, and I want to talk about um, there was a, tr- a concept that you used in the book that I really love that also leads to I think some really useful practical tips. Um, and it's mise en place. Mise en place. Well, that was an interesting one because that's, uh, that was actually inspired by Chef Danielle Belude, who Ashley and I met. Um, he's a renowned French culinary chef. Many people might know who he is. He's got many, many restaurants, an entrepreneur. He's taught many famous, famous chefs. Who and his desserts are so there. good. When I went to his restaurant, I ordered oh. the same one twice. I had to have more. <laughs> he's amazing. Um, but interestingly enough, Ashley and I met him in Charleston at the Food and Wine Festival. We struck up a conversation as we were writing the book. 
And he ended up bringing us um, to Danielle and spent some time with him. We interviewed him and sat down with him. He took us on a tour of the restaurant, really just kind of spent time with us um, to really understand how he works and why he's been so successful. And one thing that he really talked about um, in the book, we talk about this is don't work like a caveman, um, which we'll, we'll get kind of talked to in this in place about what that actually means. But something that he's sort of notorious for and, and has been uh, sometimes even criticized for is he would sit up at the top of, uh, he, he has this little thing in the back of the restaurant um, where he works out of. It's, it's almost like a little tree house that sits above the top of the kitchen. And he would have a laser pointer. And when one of his chefs would do something out of line or he saw something not being prepped pr properly or maybe the, the kitchen it started to look messy, he would laser point down to them, scare the shit out of them, and basically <laughs> tell them to snap back into place. And what he taught us through that lesson and, and as we spent a lot of time with him is he is impeccable when it comes to organization and making sure that everything's in its place. So missing place really just means it's a, it's a French phrase that just translates to put in place. And without that order, right, dishes wind up, uh, you know, mistimed or overcooked. People can get cut. They can get burned. Um, sanitation sort of goes south. Um, and really the customer service experience uh, suffers. But with, or you know, uh, organization, synchronization, it feels like it's a dance, not a rodeo. Um, when you have that sort of organization in your life and work, it really can allow you to create this sort of masterpieces. And on the flip side of that, even sometimes for artists, being sort of messy and chaotic can lead to great art. So it's kind of this interesting play, right? Sometimes having tension and restriction makes you perform better. And sometimes being crazy and chaotic allows you to create masterpieces too. So the point of, I think, Mission Place is just really about um, organization and really taking pride in your workplace. And I guarantee you there's a bunch of people listening right now who their laptops are extremely disgusting. And they've probably got crumbs on the keyboard. I know who you are. But, you know, go grab a thing of Windex and, like, spray it down and, like, organize it because you will feel better. You will perform better. And it just is, there's a sense of pride there that I think you really – um, epitomizes as, 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 a, as a great world-class chef that we learned a lot from just walking through his kitchen, spending time with him and learning how orderly his mind works and what he expects of others is complete order as well. There are two things in what you said that I want to unpack a little bit because I think they're important and that they can help different people apply this concept in ways that work for them. So one of them is that there are some people who defy their mother's advice or rules and they can create out of chaos and it works for them. But in particular, if you are having a hard time um, harnessing your creativity, unleashing it, being productive, um, that by creating order around you, it can actually simplify your world and make a little quiet so that your own noise and productive noise can be generated. So it's not just um, a dynamic a component of his, that kind of excellence. It can be a useful tool that anybody could bring into their lives. Yes? Anybody at all, even the, the, the artists like slap the paint all around their room. Um, I think it's really important because this is a really this is a mantra about not being sloppy and pay, paying attention to the details. And when you can do the details right, when you can not have to be so concerned with the chaos that surrounds you. And we do, you can create order and organization in your work. That can be extremely freeing for someone who can get lost in all of that chaos. Um, so if there's if you're a person who is has a natural inclination inclination to have messes around you, if your desks are filled with stacks and stacks of paper, if you can't find things, if you can't um, you know if you you leave cans of coke around the room and for weeks at a time, you know things like that. Just the is often a reflection of what is going on in your brain and the state of mind that you're in. And so sometimes just like cleaning that out, you know, is just such a freeing and releasing experience. You're Marie Kondoing that kid is what you're doing. <laughs> 
Um, by the way, this is Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Sonny Vanell and Ashley Hansberger, co-founders of Motto, about their book, Rare Breed, A Guide to Success for the Defiant, Dangerous and Different. So I want to um, take this idea and move to a slightly different framework. So in talking about, you know, how we accept these part of ourselves and um, frame the way that we think about our experiences so that we can be productive. And one of them, it was a phrase that I saw in the book that just really resonated with me that I'd love for you to talk about. Maybe, Ashley, you can take it first. And it was accepting defeats with a short memory. Talk to me about what that means and how you learned it. We cannot linger in our defeat. You know, failure is inevitable. We're going to mess up. We're going to do things all the time that are that can very easily just keep you stuck in your place of defeat and with that feeling. And that will do you no good at all. You have to forget about those things so that you can move forward and push past them. We often see people who are just so stuck in their own thing, you know, their own disappointment in themselves or the thing that didn't go right at work or the meeting that they that they messed up in or the part of the speech that they forgot or, you know, the, the typos that they had uh, in their email, you know, just lingering on all of those flaws and fail failures. And what we find is there's just nothing good at all that just comes out of allowing that to stay with you and continue to like Hurt yourself with it. So for those so of us does. that misstep because we're human, which I do all the time, I'll find myself yeah. up in the middle of the night worrying about stuff that I can't fix in the middle of the night. Yeah. Right. Well, we do too. I mean, look, like we, we, we wrote the book on it. Right? <laughs> we are all seven of these, of these traits. Um, and it's why we struggled with completing the book. You know, it was why we struggled with getting the book sold. <laughs> I mean, keep in mind, like, Rare Breed was rejected 18 times. The initial draft of Rare Breed was rejected by every major publisher two years ago. 18 times? And 18 times. We were surrounded in defeat. We still have all the letters from every publisher that told us no. And they all said such nice things like Sonny and Ashley are brilliant. Sonny and Ashley are very, they look very charming, but there's no book here. And it was very hard. We got 18 no's, and our agent, who, if you're listening, you are awesome. Um, <laughs> but she stuck with us, and one of the things that she told us was, guys, I think that you should try again, but you should try again under a different name. And we went to several consultants. We asked all sorts of people that were experts in publishing and had worked in publishing and had been acquisitions editors. And every single one of them told us, do not go back with the same title. You need to change the title. You can go rewrite the book, but you shouldn't go back with the same title. And we're like, well, we fucking love the title. Like, why wouldn't we go back with the same title? And they're like, because that's crazy. They've already told you no. They're going to say, didn't I just read this? And didn't I say no? And so there was a moment where Ashley and I put it up on the shelf. And we thought the dream was done. We were going to just hang it up and we weren't going to write that book and we had a, a, a call uh, with someone who had been a very sort of a person that we'd known for a long time he works with a lot of well-known um, authors and consultants and people like that to help them sort of shape their big idea he's known Ashley and I since we were in the early 20s and he worked with us a little bit on rare breed and we gave him a call and we said Mark we feel like we can't do this. Like we just, we're just going to hang it up. Like we tried, we went out, we, we, nobody wants the book. And he said, he hit like, he's on Skype. He only does Skype calls and he presses his face up against the glass. And he goes, let me tell you what you're going to do right now. He said, you're going to go grab that manuscript and you're going to sit your asses back down at that computer. And you're going to rewrite the whole damn thing. He said, because rare breed is fucking brilliant and people need to know about it. He said, don't let them know you and it was just that little shot in the arm you know sometimes you just need somebody to give you the permission that they like that they hear you that you're seen right and then in in, in in that moment it was sort of like all right well you know maybe there is something in this idea and so we went back and we tore the whole thing down it's very painful to do that because we had spent a year and a half writing a proposal that got rejected probably longer than that 
And so we tore the whole thing down. And we didn't, we realized that it wasn't the idea of Rare Breed that was wrong. It, it's that we had positioned it wrong. We had originally positioned it as a branding book. And it wasn't a branding book. So it was bigger than that. And we didn't really realize it at the time. So once we stripped it down and rewrote it. I'm wondering if this is um, what they refer to in the book as being loyal to the night to the nightmare um, that you have to expect that you're going to be rejected as you try these things that you're going to um, it's hard. I think it's also part of why nobody ever says that writing a book was the fun part. They're glad that they wrote it, but going through it is often hell for many people. Um, for those of you who are just tuning in, this is Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. We've been talking with um, Ashley Hansberger and Sonny Bennell uh, about their book, Rare Breed, A Guide to Success for the Defiant, Dangerous, and Different. Um, they're also co-founders of Motto, which is a really remarkable branding and digital marketing agency. For those of you who would like to tune in, and check out what they do, I have a couple of recommendations for you. So first of all, you can go to HTTPS colon backslash thisisrarebreed.com. Um, and as I was mentioning before, one of the options they have on the site is not just an explanation of the book, but you can take this, this survey. It's really fun and it's really provocative. They ask a series of questions. Um, it takes about 10 minutes. It was a really fun little part of my day um, where you're confronted with, in this situation, what would you do? Like, which of these quotes is most inspiring and in a moment of a problem how would you handle it um, and I found by going through it not only confirmed what multiple members of my family employers have said to me that I can be a little rebellious but it also helped me see that um, these attributes have multiple dimensions and it's interesting to see how they play out the other place that you can go to learn more about them is https colon backslash wearemotto.com. Um, one of the most amazing things is to take a look at their website and see all the great work that they've done. Anyway, Ashley and Sonny, before we sign off, um, tell me if there was one thing that you wrote about in the book that you wish that you knew when you started working together. Sonny, what would it be? Being defined, dangerous, and different is a gift. Own it and appreciate it. And how about you, Ashley? Absolutely. We share that sentiment. And so if people want to follow you on Twitter, how can they find each of you? Yeah, well, we're mostly active on Instagram. So you can find us on Instagram at thisisrarebreed. You can find us at thisisrarebreed.com. And you can also, as I mentioned earlier, find us, um, of course, the book is on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Plus, you can also take the quiz, which I mentioned earlier in the uh, in the segment, you can uh, take the quiz at rarebreedquiz.com and find out what virtue you are. That is fantastic. Ladies, I can't thank you enough both for writing this delightful and inspiring book and for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. And thank you, everybody, for listening in. If you have a question, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132, at Laura Zarrow. And download our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Pippa, iHeartRadio. Just search for Women at Work with the at sign and me. Laura Zarrow. Special thanks to Patty Hall, Dion Simpkins, Caitlin Satterfield, and Amanda Maffa. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, and go out there and be bold. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.